and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the Pack Heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 42, where today I'm joined by Lindsay Scott, who is the CEO and founder of Kindred Cultures. Before we do get started, though, this episode is proudly brought to you by our show sponsor, Food Pack. Now, it's important to remember that your packaging is the first and most meaningful interaction that your consumer will have with your product. At Foodpack, we focus exclusively on what your vision and needs are and work hard to deliver a flexible packaging solution that serves its purpose properly at the right price. So if you're looking to get into the market for the first time or would like to assess your existing packaging and program, I recommend that you get in touch with me directly by emailing me at hayden at foodpack.ca or by calling me on my cell, which is 604-360-679. Okay, now founded in 2018 and located in Richmond, BC, Kinder Cultures makes infused water kefir beverages using fresh, raw natural ingredients to create a delicious and nutritious probiotic beverage. Their infused water kefir is vegan, uses only raw ingredients, and is low in calories and sugar. Currently producing five flavors and all available in two sizes, Kinder Cultures can be found online and in over 100 retail display cases here on the western side of Canada. On today's episode, Lindsay and I take a deep dive into the inspiring Kinder Culture story, which was primarily seated by the necessity to find relief for her youngest son's health. We touch on so many different things, uh, particularly how they scale production, the evolution and the story behind Lindsay's brand, the beautiful color palette of their various SKUs, their distribution network, approach to marketing, and their transition from B2C to B2B sales and marketing. Lindsay is an inspiration and there's so much here for you in this episode, so I'll get out of the way and let you enjoy the show. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hi Hayden, so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you too. It's uh, 8.30 in the evening and the kids are either being worked on to get down to sleep or my kids are asleep, which is good. So we've got time up our sleeve. (laughs) That's right. I love it. Yeah, me too. Now, I've been really excited to have a conversation with you because um, Jackie Thomas from Lita's Mexican Foods actually introduced the two of us. And uh, I know that you guys share a workspace together. We do. She's amazing. I love having Jackie around because she is uh, just an incredible force of nature and uh, so motivating to be around. Yeah, isn't she? She was actually on episode 20 of this podcast and we're just doing actually you and I recording episode 42. So it was a while ago that we spoke, but I keep up to date with what she's doing on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, she's kicking goals right across the board from what I can tell. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's cool. And you're kicking goals as well. So let's get stuck into your business, which I'm really excited to, um, you know, have a really in-depth conversation about because you're so well known over here on the West Coast. Um, You've got beautiful branding, a beautiful set of colors out in the world and really recognizable in all of the fridges and display cases that I've seen. But before we start that conversation, one of the first questions that I ask all of my guests is, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah, I'm originally from Oregon and uh, and grew up there with my family. I've lived in a couple of different countries. Canada is my mm. fourth, uh, but I really like it here. Right. And what um what brought you up north? 
My husband, he is Canadian. And That'll do it. Yeah, we had to decide uh, who who switches sides of the border. And he was like, yeah. come to Canada. It's great. It's like, so Maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, very good. And how long ago was that? I've been here for 10 years. Mm-hmm. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary this year. Oh, so. great. And, yeah. um, and how was it growing up in Oregon? Amazing. Yeah. You know, Oregon is such a beautiful place. It's very similar to here. Yeah. Um, and so I think moving to British Columbia um, and raising a family here feels very familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of nature, lots of outdoor time, um, lots of appreciation of of good food and quality and and um, and great people and you know, very very wonderful West Coast life. Yeah, totally. Actually, this whole pocket is a, a beautiful part of the world. Very similar coastline to where I grew up in the southeastern pocket of um, Australia um, in that it's windswept and it's cold and, you know, plenty of rain um, at times. Um, but I've only been as far south on the road as Seattle. We haven't made it down to Portland yet. So that is all sort of your territory, hey? Oh, you've got to go. Oh, yeah. it's just, it's foodie mecca. Yeah. It's such a fun place. Yeah. Um, and uh, a great place to visit with kids because there's just so many um, interesting events, and I guess COVID sort of puts a damper on some of that stuff. But mm. but Portland's such a lively, fun place, and the Oregon coast is just there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, no doubt. Um, do you drink coffee? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can't live without it. Yeah. yeah. I, um, prior to working in uh, packaging, I was working in the coffee industry, and I've been in the coffee industry for years and years, and so it was. Um, something I'm extremely passionate about, but yeah, there's such a, a rich um, history of coffee over here on that pocket of the States, you know, particularly with Stumptown coffee, which is, you know, really mm-hmm. leading the way in specialty coffee. And, um, and where I come from in Melbourne, Melbourne's so well known for its coffee and food culture as well. So with a, a few of the roasters that I work for back home, you know, Stumptown was always on their lips and a company that they were looking to, um, you know, to, to sort of, it was interesting. Like they were looking at Stumptown for two reasons. They were obviously paving the way in direct trade relationships with a lot of the producers back at Origin, which was really cool. And that's sort of a business model that's becoming more and more common these days in the coffee world. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were also the way that they bought the product to market was really cool. And they made it, you know, specialty coffee so approachable because for a lot of people, specialty coffee isn't approachable, but they sort of went about it in a way that was really unique. And um, I would say, you know, they were ahead of the curve and, um, and Melbourne sort of definitely picked up on that. And, uh, yeah, it's been really cool to sort of get down to Seattle and get into a stump town and, and check it all out. But yeah, I've got to get to further down to Portland. Oh yeah. Stumptown's such a, an inspiring story of, you know, upstarts having a really, a really interesting idea and just paving their own way. Yeah. Um, you know, they were growing when I was, but in university, they yep. had just sort of started to take off. And um, obviously half of my friends worked there. And my first job was in coffee too. It's mm. it's in our blood in Oregon. It's how we stay warm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask prior to sort of the industry, the CPG and, you know, the beverage industry that you're in right now, you've come from quite a bit of a background from what I can tell on LinkedIn. And I'd love to sort of hear a little bit about it. Like, where did you go to school? Yeah. You know, when I first started uni, I think I changed my major five times in six semesters and then said, (laughs) I'm going to take a break. I clearly don't know what I'm doing here. Um, And I took a couple gap years and have always, my trade has always been working in restaurants and food service. 
Um, so traveled around a bit, went to India and Thailand and Sri Lanka and, um, you know, took some time to grow up into the world a little bit mm. before I settled on uh, international politics and moved to Italy, uh, moved to Rome, went to school there for two years mm-hmm. uh, to finish my degree. And, uh, and of course, graduated right in the midst of the subprime market crisis in the States. Yeah. Um, and so after you know, not really looking at the States and saying, it's hard for me to come home. There's not that much going on job-wise. Um, I ended up in North Carolina and started working for a venture capital firm, a private equity mm-hmm. fund of funds out there. Um, my first grown-up job after university. Um, but I found it really interesting how business developed in the PEVC space and you know my bosses were investing in Spotify when it was young mm. and Instagram when it was young um, so it was really neat to sort of see that early business development mm. um, and then when I came out to Vancouver I transitioned into green technology mm. private equity you know doing I was the first employee they hired so mm-hmm. I did a little bit of everything and it was mm-hmm. a great um, again, opportunity to see what it was like being on the the front end of these burgeoning businesses and and what it took to grow them. Um, But, you know, my company really came out of necessity inside my own family. And that's, um, you know, I think having that background was really helpful Mm. for being able to navigate these early years um, with some great... (laughs) acumen resources mm. to call upon mm-hmm. um, not necessarily ones that I had learned myself but being able to pick up the phone and reach out to people who I had worked with in the past yeah. and and get you know really life-saving guidance yeah from them. that was actually going to be one of my first questions because coming from that venture capital world you would have seen how volatile startups can be like I've forgotten what the exact stat is, but there's a ridiculous amount of businesses that, you know, shut down within the first 12 months or the first 18 months. And, you know, it's all downhill from there. So to survive that period of time, not only with the right amount of cash to keep going through those early years is completely critical, but then you would also have seen some really interesting stories of just the, the founders and the startup team just having the wrong mix. So you probably saw some scary stories, but you probably saw some amazing stories as well. So what was it that sort of really gave you the push to go out on your own and get this business started on your own too? Um, you know, I always say that I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Mm. You know, this isn't, I, I never came out into the world thinking, you know, I've, I'm going to come up with a good idea and I'm going to, I'm going to pave the way with it. Um, and in fact, I was really hesitant to start my business initially because I thought, you know, this is just, I don't know if this is the right fit for me. Like, I don't know. I don't do risk. Yeah. That's not my jam. Yeah. Um, and obviously entrepreneurship is all about managing and yeah. mitigating risk. Um, and so my husband, who is a serial entrepreneur and, and has, you know, quite a lot of business education, has his MBA sat down with me and said, you know, there's ways to do this without, you know, jumping full bore in right Mm -hmm. away. Like, you know, what if you parse it down into something that 
you do feel comfortable with and you just start there just because, you know, you, you can, you can sort of get something rolling that way. Um, and when I was able to parse it down into something smaller, I can say, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to start off with the farmer's market and I'll take the kids and, and, you know, this can be sort of a side hustle thing while I figure out what it really means for me. Um, but at the end of the day, the most compelling reason for our business to continue is because we're really grateful to make something that benefits other people's lives Mm -hmm. and benefits our own lives. You know, that's, that's that foundational story of being able to, to help my son, um, improve his health conditions and not just him, but my husband and my neighbors and good friends of mine and people who, you know, have come into the business since then, um, including my business partner, it becomes very vocational. You know, this is, if I'm here to do something um, that can help other people, that's a, that's a great honor. That's a great gift. That's yeah, something really that you have to pursue forward. I felt obligated to pursue forward. Um, and in the end, it creates incredible growth opportunities for yourself personally to be able to learn how to do things that you were absolutely positive a couple of years ago that you could not, would not, and should not do. Mm. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Actually, when I was reading the, um, you know, the about section on your website and I dug into you at, um, or on LinkedIn and I was reading the kind of culture story, I did find it fascinating that it was born from a necessity to sort of, you know, get your son's health back on track. And, you know, that is such a common story because I've had some great guests on this show, whether it's Eve from Eve's Crackers, you know, she was fixing an issue with her eczema. Jackie, you know, from Leaders, who we just mentioned before, she just wanted to feed her family really good, high quality food. You've got Lana from Hunter Browns. I've actually listed them all because it's it's really, it's a common theme and story. You've got Lana from Hunter Browns who also wanted to feed her family. She's also from Steveston too, which you understand. Yep. So just local to me too. Naya Shanalia from Switch Grocery, you know, she decided to get her health and fitness back on track and the keto diet was really important to her. And now she's obviously got this whole online retail chain, which is really focused on the keto um, keto diet. And then you've got Myra Mayer from Bacon a Minute, who's also got her keto story. And that's completely revolves around um, the product that she's putting out in the world in Bacon a Minute. So I love the fact that people are starting their own businesses born from, you know, a necessity to either change things in their own life or help other people. And then they've, you know, just tugged on that little thread and they've found a way through it. And, um, you know, obviously there's been market research and, you know, product validation and testing and all of the critical pieces out there to ensure that it's an idea worth investing, not only your time, but, you know, capital into as well, but yeah, just an amazing start. So at what point, obviously let's go, go back to the story and sort of introduce everybody to sort of what water kefir is, because you know, probiotic health is such a topic of conversation these days. You know, you've got kombucha, which is extremely popular out there. And I went through a stage myself of making kombucha. You've got regular dairy kefir or yogurt mm-hmm. kefir, which I was familiar with, but I wasn't familiar with water kefir until I actually saw your product on the shelf. And um, I was actually in at the juice truck just down the road. And so tell us a little bit about water kefir and what makes that unique and how it is exactly that, you know, you landed on that as an, a, um, as an approach or a solution to the problem that you were solving with your son's health. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so my son, um, when he was around 12 or 13 months old, started to develop, um, quite significant eczema. And Mm. when we, 
you know, we're going in and out of doctor's offices. We can't find something that's actually solving the problem. We're abating the symptoms a little bit. We're alleviating a little discomfort, but it's not going away. It's not getting better. And it's causing secondary and tertiary Hmm. health issues. And it's just, it just wasn't an acceptable solution for us. Um, And so we went into a naturopath. She said, this is really a a gut microbiome issue. You know, he had had to take antibiotics when he was really young. It just threw his whole body out of whack. Mm -hmm. And their um, assessment of him was that what we were seeing as eczema was really inflammation inside of his body that was Mm -hmm. expressing itself through his skin. So they... Um, said, you know, we need to, we need to try probiotics, but you're talking about putting probiotics in a baby. Mm. He's 14 months old, 15 months old at this point. Um, and he was diagnosed as allergic to dairy as along with a laundry list of other things. Um, so I needed, uh, in my head, I needed a live probiotic that was not dairy based that didn't have bubbles because babies don't drink bubbles. Most Mm. babies don't drink bubbles. Um, The texture is complex for them. And I needed it to fit a commonly agreed upon nutritional profile that my husband and I apply with our kids. Right. And that didn't exist. Um, And so I was playing around with things in my kitchen. I had heard about this non-dairy based kefir and, um, and once we started working with it, we were able to find what we were looking for with him. So water kefir is like a sister to milk kefir. We call them the same thing because their microbial composition of the mother scobies is relatable and similar. Um, Their origins are a little bit different. Obviously the way that we make them is quite different. Um, And kefir in and of itself is sort of like a cousin to kombucha right? You're still working with these mothers. Mm -hmm. These mother scobies have this combination of different beneficial bacteria and yeasts that work together in symbiosis to create a ferment that naturally works. Like all of the, all of the bacteria inside will work together because they're comfortable living together. Um, And those bacteria go into our gut um, and complement the host of existing bacteria that we're using for all of the critical functions that are happening in our digestive system from top to bottom. Um, And kefir specifically helps support your immune system. It's supporting metabolic function, nutrition extraction from your food um, and healthy digestion, which is, you know, the the whole, all of those systems working together Mm. Um, along with a growing body of research that's showing the connection between good microbiome health and good mental health. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And water kefir and and dairy kefir as well um, have shown in multiple studies that they can affect the production of GABA in our brains, helping, you know, produce better mental health outcomes, which when you put all these things together, you're like, this stuff is totally amazing. And somehow I'm accidentally making it in my kitchen Mm -hmm. and my kid will drink it. Yeah. It was, it's a really, it was really compelling uh, a concept early on. And over what period of time did you see the benefits starting to show in your son's health? Uh, 72 hours. Wow. In 72 hours, I went from a kid who 
you know, it was winter at the time and eczema is worse in, worse yeah. in the winter. Yeah. And he had bleeding cheeks um, the day that we finally got him to, to drink something that I made. Yeah. And we, because he drank it, we gave him that thing for three days in a row. And on the third day, his skin had healed up. He was sleeping through the night. You know, he's a baby. We can track his digestion very well. Yeah. That was clearly doing better. It's like a miracle, mm. you know, when you're, when you're slamming around trying to find something um, for relief for this very uncomfortable little tiny person yeah. and then something works. I was like an instant kefir zealot. Like, yeah. I got to go tell everybody I know about this yeah. and make them try it and then tell me what it does for their body. Yeah. Yeah. And so at what point did you sort of take it from something that you were producing for your family? And I don't see other opportunities in the, or other products out in the market that are like this. There could be an opportunity that I can, um, that I could grab onto here. Um, I think we were in, uh, again, you know, sort of accidental R and D for about eight months. Um, once I found something that I could work with, yeah. um, toying around with it and then, Yeah. And then we incorporated in May and I took a couple months, a couple months to sort of figure out how you were supposed to get into the food business, because mm. there are some specific hurdles yeah. that you have to learn how to cross, um, to, to get into food manufacturing. Um, and once I, I, you know, sort of preliminarily jumped those hoops, I thought, well, you know, we'll do a soft launch at the farmer's market and just mm -hmm. see how it goes. Um, and going out into the farmer's market in Steveston, you know, yep. right down the street, such a, such a great little community. Um, you know, I think I just asked them like, Hey, do you have any room? And she was like, sure, show up next week. And that was how we launched. Um, but people were really, really interested in it. They had all sorts of interesting questions. Um, sold 500 bucks in my first market. And for me, I was like, well, holy cow, I don't even know what I'm doing. And I can, and I can, you know, people are, people are here, you know, really listening to me and listening to this story and being really compelled by it. So mm. let's go. That's amazing. What was the conversation that you were having? Like, how did the conversation go? Like, was it somebody was coming up and saying, what is this? And then you had to sort of just have your elevator pitch essentially to tell them what it was, give them a sample. And then what feedback were they giving you? Yeah, it was really varied. Most people were like, this is really good. And usually these things that are healthy for me don't taste very good. Yeah. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Um, they also really liked the fact that it wasn't sparkling. Yeah. Um, there was lots of questions about why doesn't this have dairy in it or why doesn't it taste like kombucha or why don't I know how to pronounce this? You know, there's, it, it's a very emergent concept, um, especially three years ago, but I think people were really drawn by the motivation behind it, by, you know, the fact that I'm, I'm just a mom standing in a parking lot with a couple of kids who are, you know, running around with my husband somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and we made this because it made them healthier. And I just want to see if it helps you too. And that I think was the big sales point for, for the whole business. I mean, mm. I think that that's really the backbone of, our real connection with our consumers is that we do this because we really just care about it. You believe because, in it. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So you mentioned before that you're sort of averse to risk and that you wanted to take baby steps. At 
was it sort of at this stage where you're like, okay, now that I've validated the idea, I've sold $500 worth of product here. People love it. So I feel good about going out into the world and producing more. What was the next step for you? Um, I, I decided to stay in the farmer's markets for the first year. Yep. Um, just lots of product market testing, lots of consumer market um, questions and, and analysis. Um, and, and most of it was training me, training me to understand what I really had on my hands, mm. how to communicate with people, what they did and didn't understand. Um, and what I continued to find through our market growth, um, was that people were really, really into the idea. And we would see, you know, at the time we had a bottle recycling program, right? Yeah. I was trying to save every penny that I could and I really wanted to do this sustainably and what a great marriage there. And we would go out into the market with, you know, eight or 10 cases and we would come home with eight or 10 cases of returns. Mm. Um, and when I saw the consumer loyalty and people started coming back and bringing their friends and saying like, oh, you know, I brought my friend because I told her that this made me feel so good and she needs to pick the one for her. And then both of them would come back the next week and they'd bring a neighbor. And, and when you start to see that natural word of mouth lineage mm. um, happening without you pushing, that was, um, that was, I think, the, the opening for me to say, okay, I can go one step farther and I can ask a grocery store if they might carry this and, yeah. and start with somebody that's a small local independent who a couple people have told me, oh, you should go talk to you know, Jen at Westwood Organics. She's awesome. She's super supportive of local business she'd love to meet you. And, and that was our, you know, you know, let's start with one retail account and see what goes wrong and see what goes right. <laughs> yeah. It's a good test. Yeah. And so throughout that 12 month period where you're at the farmer's market, you were having all of these great conversations where you're collecting all of this information and sort of putting it into a database so that you could sort of figure out when you were producing new SKUs or where you were doing your testing, sort of where the market was at, or was it sort of a little bit more ad hoc and you were just feeling it out as you went? Um, I think it was very, um, organic for me. Yeah. Perfect. Um, yeah. you know, it was me in my notebook and writing down everything and building some information, you know, in spread, in spreadsheets, having my husband help me build a COGS document, mm -hmm. yep. um, things like that, where I started to build more practical business things, mm. um, you know, writing my business plan again and again and again and again iterating on it um yeah. yeah and thinking at the time that i kept rewriting it because i didn't understand what i was doing in the last iteration but the the more that um the more times i revised that document the more i understood that it was really just for me mm. at this point it was just my own thoughts and guidance in some sort of linear format that started to look like a reasonable, logical case yeah. for the brand. That's perfect. And I guess the other thing that you were doing is you're really trying to hone down who your target audience and who your customer is as well. And the perfect thing about a farmer's market is you've got a captured audience and you're getting to actually, you know, have a face-to-face -face conversation with these consumers, which is awesome. And it's a great way to sort of build that out. Um, 
when you were starting to develop a brand around the product, because I can imagine at first you had a, a bit of a hypothesis as to sort of what the brand would be and what you wanted it to look like. How has it evolved over time from, you know, the very first moment you went out to market to where it is today? Yeah, well, we launched the brand under Culture Kafir Co. Yeah. Which uh, always had, you know, always had a nice ring to it. I, I really liked, I felt like it went really well with the branding that we chose. We were very focused on this modern apothecary concept. How mm. do we take this old idea, old idea, this traditional idea of yep. food as medicine and evolve it um, into, you know, this modern category that's become very um, popular and fantastic in my mm. opinion. Um, and then as we got about a year and a half into the business, I'm starting to look at IP and trademark protection. And I realized that we can't trademark this name. Um, you know, I was on the phone with the lawyers and she was like, call it off right now. Like go pick a new business name because, uh, this one's just not going to work for what specific you, enough. Yeah. What you want to do. Yeah. It was, there was, um, an existing company that had a close enough name, um, that, uh, and they had, they had the prior use rights. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like renaming your third child. Like I remember sitting on the floor. This was a point in time where I, I was really trying to become good at meditating. I wouldn't argue that I've gotten much better than I was then, but I remember sitting down and meditating about words and like sitting, feeling like I was sitting in this swirl of, <laughs> of just adjectives and synonyms and antonyms and just language to try to encapsulate in this new context, what it is that we're doing. And uh, we're very fortunate to have some wonderful advisors around us um, as as the business has grown. Um, and at that time, we had a couple people working with us, um, specifically uh, Judy Brooks from Smart Suites. All right, yep. Helping just quietly on the sidelines. She, she'd come in and, and, you know, give us some brand advice, do a little strategy session. Um, and when we were doing the rename, I called her just asking for some input um, as we were finalizing our way down to a short list. Um, and she was, she was one of the ones that was really like, you know, kindred cultures. This was, this was on, there was, I think we were down to three names and kindred kefir was one of them. And, and she brought in the idea of merging these two ideas, this, this, you know, former name of culture and how meaningful that was for us. Um, and I was really dedicated to the concept of kindred because it really speaks to why I do what I do, mm. right? You know, because we're all connected and the beauty of working in fermented foods is that, you know, you're working with diversity in and of itself naturally. And so I'm like, you know, we, we're reflecting this incredible diversity of the world, like in this tiny little bottle that goes in time inside of this tiny universe inside of you and mm -hmm. it's all connected and, and, uh, and she was like, oh, well, and this is why it's a great way to, you know, rename your company with something that is a new iteration of, of what it is now. You know, it, it's not, a business is not static by any means. If it is, it's probably a bad thing, but 
especially in a small business, we evolve really, well, not necessarily always really rapidly, but we evolve a lot um, as we grow. And, um, and I felt like that name change was a really unique way for us to um, kind of pin ourselves to this new evolution and what it meant. And it's been a really wonderful experience to build the brand around that new concept um, because it's, it's really who we are now. Mm. Um, And I really love that. It does. It captures it all. And especially, you know, hearing you tell that little snippet of a story, I completely get it now. It encapsulates it all in a bottle. You know, it's, it's beautiful. Um, how was it received in the marketplace? Well, they got it really well. You know, um, I think it took a little while for the, for the, the, the mouth works to transition, you know, for all of us to get used yeah. to saying it and, and for our customers and our retailers to sort of move into that transition. But one of my favorite things is that, you know, like we shorthand anytime we're speaking to someone, you know, like, hi, you know, I'm Lindsay calling from Kindred. Yeah. And, um, and that feels really nice. And mm. that has, I think, um, that's been great for the whole team. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I would love to sort of dig into how you scaled the operation, if that was all right. So you started off at farmers markets. Were you um, were you fermenting in the kitchen to get started at home? Um, so you know, for food like ours, we've got yeah. to be producing in a commercial kitchen. So right from the start, right from the beginning. Wow. Yeah, okay. we moved into a commissary, and I had the top floor in the corner, you know, of a walk-up kitchen. Yep. I wanted the most basic setup that I could possibly get my hands on. Um, and we were fermenting in three liter glass jars. Um, and I was still really new at this ferment. So we didn't mm. know how long we had to do and, you know, mix things and let things sit. And we had this, I had this big awkward process that I was doing only at nights because I would leave when the kids would go to bed. Yep. So I'd start work at 10 and go until one in the morning and then come home and be with them during the day and then go and do it again at night. Um, they'd come with me sometimes and like hang out and color all over everything underneath of the table <laughs> while I was trying to get things done. Yeah. Um, and then it was all about quantities starting to change. Um, so it became untenable to work upstairs because we're hauling so much stuff, you know, take 26 trips to load the car for a farmer's market. Yeah. And while that's an amazing workout, it's not a sustainable business model. Not at all. Yeah. Um, And so that manufacturing growth has always been predicated on consumer demand. Mm. Um, And we've just been really grateful to see consumer demand continue to grow. Yeah, no, totally. I guess my question was, you know, you mentioned three liter batches. Are you still using the three liter batches and you've just like extrapolated that out based on demand or if you increased your batch sizes or how did you sort of go about testing and adjusting your recipe to sort of um, to either keep up with demand or give you the ability to sell more product out into the world? Yeah, you bet. Um, We no longer ferment in three liter glass. We now work out of multi hundred liter stainless steel tanks and transfer pumps. And, um, it's still pretty manual, but, um, it gives us really impeccable product quality control. 
and allows us to run the R&D testing that we need to and make small tweaks um, yeah. now that we're really comfortable in these large batch sizes. Um, and through those transitions in manufacturing, um, we sort of did them one at a time, you know, increase batch size at the ferment level first, and then see if things shuddered, see if we saw different outcomes. And then we'd make a change with the ingredients and we'd see how those would go. And um, we worked frequently with University of British Columbia. They have a fantastic food science department, mm -hmm. um, quite a few faculties that work in, um, in food. And I think this year we had our 12th and 13th, 12th, 13th and 14th um, practicum students come through. That's cool. Yeah. Um, like we've just used them every year to come in and answer complex technical questions that we didn't understand how mm -hmm. to research or, or pick apart on our own. Um, they've helped take us through the shelf life testing we needed to do, microbial analysis, um, recommendations on changes for ingredients and formulations. And, um, you know, when you grow a recipe from small volume to large volume, it's not a one-to-one -one corollary. Um, and each ingredient has its own transition points. So they were really integral. You know, we knew what we were looking for. We had a feel for what we thought might work they had a more technical approach for how we could uh, tackle that problem and come out with a really tenable solution on the other side. That's perfect. That's exactly what I thought I would hear. Like I knew that, you know, scaling a production like yours would have created a lot of challenges. So it was really interesting to hear that you did consult with UBC and uh, the faculties there. Um, how did you go about creating that relationship? Did you just reach out to UBC or were you introduced to them? Or yeah. Feeding growth. Uh, is a, I'm sure something that most people who are listening to this podcast are really familiar with. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, UBC farm and, and all of the work that they do with Brian Saul and brand natural. That was my first business course mm -hmm. in food. Really? Um, it was the first place where I sort of was looking around and I thought this is a, this is community. This is yep. a place where I can go meet other people who are doing things like what I'm doing and maybe less lost yep. or more, or, or, you know, have, have more information to share. Yeah. Um, and so during one of those sessions, I was introduced to a UBC professor in the MFRE program, Dr. Mm -hmm. Colleen Wiseman, who's amazing. Um, and it was just such a simple thing. She's like, you know, we have practicum students all the time who are looking for projects and, and, you know, call me if you ever have anything. And so I called her the next day and said, I've probably got five projects that I could toss at your students. Let me know if any of these are interesting. And we, and from there, she, she introduced us to food science and said, well, I think they can do something for you here. And, um, and then we started working with land and food systems and, um, so now we bring in interns from at least two, if not three programs every year. Yeah, that's perfect. I just Googled feeding growth and you are front and center on their website. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I didn't realize that you were doing a, um, a scale your progressive food business workshop series. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I love Feeding Growth. Um, I love their team and I love everything that they do. Yeah. And they are the reason why my business did well oh, that's cool. in the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I'm going back uh, this year in the uh, supply chain and manufacturing um, session yeah. uh, to sit down and talk about manufacturing scaling and mm. the supply chain challenges yeah. that exist generally in our space, but how exacerbated they have been in COVID. Oh, can I can't imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot. Mm-hmm. Supply chain has been a, a nightmare. It continues to be a nightmare. Yeah. Yep, yep. I um I had Kathleen James on from Wisebytes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kathleen. She's amazing. Yeah, isn't she? Just a wealth of knowledge too. And she was suggesting that, you know, they really had to ensure that their the it's the security around their product was intact for their retailers. So they had to, you know, spend quite a bit of money and lock up quite a bit of their funds in um in ingredients essentially, you know, just so that they could ensure that the security around their products moving out into the world was secure. Have you had to sort of do similar things? Oh, absolutely. Um, We have done all sorts of bottle hoarding and Mm. caps and we right now, our supply chain has actually been closed Mm -hmm. since May. Um, We have seven suppliers for our bottles. Mm -hmm. And all of them have been sold out. We had to just, I mean, find anything that we possibly could. Mm. Um, and the last round, um, when we did find bottles, the, the buyer actually said, this is a miracle. I don't know why these are here. You should probably buy all of them. And so we did. Because, Sounds like a good sales tactic to me. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was very convincing. But no, I mean, this is, yeah, I no, mean, so. this, this was like month three of us calling her every week, like, yeah. hey, do you have anything now? Yeah. Do you have anything now? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, lots of little, lots of bottle warehousing to to try to keep up. Um, and the interesting part about it is that we can only get three or four months of security mm-hmm. at a time right now. Yeah, and. And then we're running into uh, literally all the brokers and manufacturers saying, we don't know. We don't Mm. know when we will make that again. We don't know when we'll be able to buy it again. And when you can buy it again, the MOQ is 150,000 units. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a large MOQ for you? That's a, that's a good MOQ. Yeah. That's that's more stock than I want to have on hand. Um, And warehouse. Yeah. Without, yeah, you know, but it also when you're presented with a supply chain in those sorts of terms, um, you have to decide now that you have to make big leaps to be able to make that happen. Yeah. Um, so now it turned on for me, the, the sales hat that says, okay, how am I going to go get enough contracts to be able to move that many units and mm. justify, you know, the lending expense, the inventory cost. Yeah for it um because every day that they sit unused i pay for them three times yeah no doubt um that's a a really good sort of segue into the next question because you know i'd love to touch on your sort of approach to marketing and sales and obviously distribution out in the world but before we sort of touch on distribution i'd love to hear your approach to marketing because you suggested that at the farmer's market, it was all word of mouth. And that was sort of how you built the business, which is such an amazing way to grow a business. How has your approach to marketing shifted now? And, um, and sort of what are you focusing on? 
Yeah, it has changed a lot. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the most difficult things to, for us to change in the business because it has always been so incredibly organic. Um, and that level of organic adoption by consumers um, lends a lot of authenticity, I think, to 100%. the way yeah. that we interact with our consumers. And so as we're trying to adapt our marketing into a, a more anonymous group of people, um, we have strived to remain authentic in the way that we communicate with people. And mm. I think that that's one of the things that creates the most challenge but also helps us remain really true to why we do what we do for other people and yeah. always trying to bring our marketing back to that central thread um, of being able to connect and share with other because others because we're all connected. So what formerly was just me and an Instagram account and a Facebook page um, that my mom likes a lot and that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> she's a wonderful advocate for me on what we do without our parents i know that mom and dad are listening to this right now so you know, mom and dad yeah. yeah yeah i hope so shout outs to all the parents yeah. um but now you know we're thinking of social media and marketing in a multi-tiered approach right we have our customers are actually grocery stores yeah like my business B2B. is built on B2B service yep. with a distributor in the middle yep. and making sure that those lines are nice and clean. Yeah. And you know, our end consumer is someone who speaks a different language and who needs different information than our retail consumer. Mm -hmm. So we've been learning a lot about how to build multi-tiered marketing that speaks the same language with slightly different words to yep. these two sectors and using social media much more as a way to create those authentic connections and maintain that um, closeness with our consumer base, yep. um, maintaining that authenticity uh, from ourselves. Mm. And then also learning how to run ads in trade rags and, you know, how do you, how do you learn how to how to take advantage of opportunities like this too, you know, to share yep. our story and, and, um, again, right. Just keep this idea of being authentically real and, and that our company, which can look as polished and professional as possible is actually run by, you know, a small group of humans who really just do this because we love it. And I think if we can always communicate that to both of those consumers, yeah or both of those customers, um, then we're doing our job. It's amazing. Isn't it like the, um, the optics of a business through an Instagram account or, you know, any sort of social media platform, it's amazing what the optics are and then what the reality is. And that's what I love about this podcast and having conversations with people like you as well, because you sort of get to really dig into the mechanics of the business and how it works and why it's been successful. And I am always blown away by how small the teams are, especially because I'm speaking to businesses in their, you know, infancies, which is really cool to sort of get some insights there. But even as businesses grow, it's always blows my mind as to sort of how small they are, but how professional uh, of a job everybody's doing and how clear on the messaging that everybody is too. And um, the one thing that I really like about your um, social media is the color. Like it's just so bright and it's so vibrant. And I know that you leverage that in a lot of the sort of the language that you use too, but it's true. Like, 
And it's, it's actually funny, but I had um, Lisa from Mood Milk. Have you come across Mood Milk at all? Yes. Yeah. Lisa's doing an amazing job, but she's really leveraging the color in her product too. And um, I was just wondering, I know it, it, my intuition tells me that it was extremely intentional that you chose beautiful colors, but were you surprised as to how vibrant and um, the colors were in the product itself when you were sort of testing all of the different um, flavors that you were coming up with? Was that something that was intentional or was it completely by surprise for you? Um, it, that was the... I think that was the linchpin for me to decide that this business was a really good idea was um, when we were able to, when I first successfully fermented spirulina at home and created this like Caribbean blue green It's just like Lake Louise. It looks like the water in Lake Louise. It's It's wild. And and it changes all the time, right? Because it's alive and it's dynamic. And so we actually, we've got like, you know, the shades of spirulina joke at, at work, oh, cool. you know, yeah. like how many, how much of a spectrum. 50 can shades of spirulina. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 we always say like, we wish we could like line them all up, but you know, yeah. they change color over time because yeah, they're cool. alive. Yeah. Um, anyways, but, but that was the real thing. Like I remember setting them up on my wind, window sill in little tiny Mason jars mm. And, you know, there was the red one and the green one and the yellow one. And one of my friends was like, oh, you should do a charcoal one. That'd be, it's so hot on Instagram. Like it's so Instagrammable. Yeah. Um, and I thought like, okay, you know, why not? Like, it's weird. Like, let's do it. Let's have fun with it. Um, and that ended up to be, that was our top seller at the farmer's market. Yeah. Like from day one, people were always really curious about it. And then the wild thing was that it's amazing for your body. Like yeah. it makes you feel great. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So the color wasn't intentional in like trying to make it that way. But when we put nature together, the way that we did in our recipes, we got this incredible vibrancy mm. and it was so compelling. It was so compelling with the kids. Mm. Um, you know, my son would, my little baby son would be standing in the refrigerator pointing at different colors. Mm. And that was how he was engaging with them. And when we took them to the farmer's market, that was exactly what little kids were doing. Mm. They were, they were really engaging with these really bright, vibrant colors. Um, and that was you know, further validation that we have an opportunity to make something that kids will like. Yep. It's good for them. Yeah. Like that's the ultimate mom goal win is make something that's healthy for your children that they'll actually ask love. you for all the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. My kids love kombucha. Love it. They call it butcha. <laughs> and uh yeah we happily give them the kombucha it's great um so that's marketing and i i guess you're absolutely right you know marketing to both a b2b channel and a b2c channel is very very different but there are absolutely common threads between the two and i guess a lot of that is sort of um, hinged on your approach to sales because you're not so much selling to the consumer anymore as you are to you know other businesses like retailers one of the questions or one of the um, interesting um, pieces of a conversation that I had on a few episodes ago was actually, you know what it was, was it with Kathleen? Yeah, it was with Kathleen from Wise Bites. You know, you get such a great interaction with the consumer at the farmer's market, but as you grow and you may grow out of, you know, the whole farmer's market scene because it's not as big a priority as it once was, but you, you sort of miss that connection that you have with the consumer and a great way to get in front of the consumer is to actually do tastings or um, actually get in front of them at an actual retail location and have a little setup. Is that something you're engaging in? Is that something that you are, um, you know, is a part of your program and are you still in the farmer's markets? 
Yeah. Um, we haven't done a farmer's market since February of 2020. Yeah. Um, you know, with the COVID transition, I, we really saw this as the safest and easiest opportunity for us to keep moving forward in our business is to lean hard into these new retail contracts. Yeah. Um, in particular, we launched in Whole Foods March 3rd of 2020. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah, it was amazing and terrifying because we literally <laughs> weren't allowed to go in the stores. Yeah. We barely even knew when product like landed. And then when we would get in there, like there was nothing we could do. And they were like, get out of here, get out of here. <laughs> How's it being displayed? Yeah, I can imagine. Yep. Yeah. Um, so transitioning off of the farmer's markets felt a bit like we were like abandoning our consumers, but I strongly felt that it wasn't the place for us to be like farmers mm. are for farm farmers markets are for farmers and for people that are, that have these perfectly paired products for, for this model. Yeah. And we already knew that we kind of weren't, weren't the right thing to be at a farmer's market. Mm. It was really helpful for us. It was amazing for cash flow. It was amazing for all of this product knowledge and market information. Yeah. Um, but people would often say, okay, like this is heavy and it's in glass. What store can I go buy it in? So we already knew that we needed to move that direction. Um, and I think as we decided to do that, um, we, we sort of realized that retail was the ultimate answer overall. Yeah. So I learned how to build that part of the business out. Um, I guess getting into Whole Foods had already given us a really good idea of what it took to get listings. Um, but it was just, it was just the only, it was just the only thing to do. It was the only mm. thing that made sense for us. Yeah. Yeah. And so are you working with a distributor right now? You did mention that you are, but are you working with one or two or how many have you got in your portfolio? Yeah, we've got two small distributors that we work with right yep. now. All all local, I guess, actually, we've just onboarded a third in Alberta. So right. um, working with three of them now and they're, it's great. I mean, it's complex, but yeah, we, we knew it was about fit. We interviewed people. Um, and I think we were just very fortunate to, to find uh, the right fit early on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess at the farmer's market, it would have also have given you a really great opportunity to sort of see where the you know, where the glass ceiling was on the, uh, the price that you could set the product at. And you, did you play around with price much at that time or were you sort of, what was your approach there? I think we were always working with consumer willingness to pay. Yeah. Um, and we've always been at the top end of it. Yeah. Um, and that's always been difficult, but, but there's a clear stop where mm. people are willing to, to expand their pocketbooks, um, at least for our category in the, in the way that our product is presented. Yeah. Um, you know, there are other products out there that can be more expensive, um, but their value props can support that more specifically. And ours really, what we kept hearing from our consumers is like, okay, you can make the most potent thing, the most potent probiotic thing out there. And like a few people will pay for it and be really happy about it. But what they really wanted was something more affordable that they could consume on a more regular basis and not feel like it was too expensive to share with the rest of their family. Yeah. 
And so that put a hard ceiling on us for Mm -hmm. um, how we would develop the product to be able to meet those consumer needs. Mm. You actually just raised a really good point. So I noticed that you've got two sizes. Um, Did you start with two sizes or did you just start with the one? We started only with the small bottles and then uh, consistently at farmer's markets, people would say it would be so nice if this was bigger, you know, I have to buy all these little things. And um, we realized that we could create a little bit of economy of scale value Mm. for people by, by using the larger bottles. Um, I think we launched in July with the small bottles in September. I, did one small round of these one liter bottles and we sold out immediately. It was the first thing that sold every day. It was what wow. people wanted right off yep. the bat. Yeah. And it overturned our production cycles. And all of a sudden we were making more big bottles than we were making small bottles. What a great problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I would love to hear, like, I've heard you mention a few things. You're relatively risk adverse. Is that something that you still find to be true or have you sort of grown through that to some degree? I have adapted my assessment of risk um, around the idea that all risk can be mitigated mm-hmm. with very, very clear uh, information. Yeah. And so I... I now take calculated risks that are based on data and information mm. that lead me to make what appears to be a good and right decision. Yeah. And that takes the fear out of risk taking for me. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, obviously, anytime that you're educating yourself enough to say, I feel like I have a 90% confidence rate that this is going to go the right way for me, um, you know, then, then you're not taking risks anymore you're just making decisions. And yeah, I think that's been, <laughs> that's like my mom printer joke, you know, moms don't take risks. We make decisions. Yeah. I didn't start this business, you know, to, to just see how it might go. I made a choice. It's a very calculated choice and it requires my full attention to bring it to fruition. That's cool. Do you think that that's something that you took out of the um, venture capital world that you stepped out of all of these years ago? Because essentially that's, you know, to invest in something, you're taking a calculated risk, you're assessing all of the data, you're sitting down, you're digesting it, you're taking a gamble, but it's an assess, you know, it's a calculated gamble. And were there tools or was there, you know, you mentioned that you had a great network to, you know, lean on from all of those years ago? Is that something that you managed to tease out from all of those years ago as well? Yes, there were lots of phone calls um, to people that I, I used to work with and work mm. for in that world, um, in particular, the guys that I worked with in North Carolina. Yep. There, I've, I had multiple conversations with them last month just yep. to you know, I'm working through this thing, you know, we're, we're looking to do some investment, you know, we're looking to, to, you know, do lending um, on inventory, or we're trying to do valuation. And, and gosh, they're so helpful, um, even though it's not in a relevant industry. Yeah. Um, business mechanics are kind of always the same, to some degree. And they've been really great at saying, go grab this book, 
this is really going to help you, you know, wrap your mind around Mm. this or, you know, go read everything that Jim Collins ever wrote. It'll just help you. Um, And, and I found that it's that combination of go and talk to somebody, get some context, Mm -hmm. do some research on my own. Um, And then I think a lot of it is building your own confidence um, to know what those good decisions really look like, to know what that, what good enough data looks like Mm. to, to, to be able to build um, a framework for yourself that you can repeat over and over again and and a structure within which, you know, a decision-making tree or whatever you want to call it. For Um, sure. What are some great books that you've read lately? Ooh, um, I love Great by Choice by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great one. Um, I'm just writing this down. Ramping Your Brand by James Richardson. He is a CPG expert, and I love his approach um, because he advocates for grassroots, you know, traditional old bootstrap your way through um, growth, but with the idea that you can take these very humble or small concepts and actually turn them into gigantic, amazing concepts Mm. um, by being very structured and strategic Mm -hmm. about the way that you implement your products and your business across the food landscape. That's cool. The previous episode that I just recorded, episode 41, uh, with the guys and the founders of Zing, I don't know if you listened to that episode, but I took so much away from that show, like their approach, you know, their startup approach to testing and going out there and having these feedback loops, you know, they've got a small um, test kitchen where they have some uh, really well-known chefs out in the world. They get their products out into their hands. They're getting feedback. They're making small iterations and adjustments on the product. And it's this whole feedback loop. And I really, really like that approach because those guys have just come from the tech world. And so they're applying these startup methodologies that are really common in the tech world into the food-based CBG world. What methodologies inspire you when you're testing? I think for us, we do a lot of A-B testing to sort out whether the marketing mechanics make sense in the way that we're presenting them to people. So split testing. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then a lot of it is kind of pooled consumer research. Mm. I take a product or product concept or a, a visual or whatever it is out and just start asking as many people as will listen to me. It's one of those things where it's like always in my purse and I'm pulling yep. it out and I'm like, Hey, you know, like, what would you think of something like this? Or, mm. do you, want, you know, when you read this, what does it say? What does it speak to you? Mm. Um, and I'm doing that with people that are inside the industry, you know, calling people up and saying, can yep. I buy you a coffee and run this by you? Yep. But I'm also taking it out. We'll even do it live at demos, um, mm. which is something that I think you asked about earlier. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't um, have a chance to get back to you, but We've been out demoing, uh, actively demoing in COVID since October of last year. Mm -hmm. They closed the demo program for a little while um, in last spring, and then they reopened it in April. And we've been demoing three to four days a week for the last five months using little two ounce sealed factory sealed samples. Yeah. And my favorite, that's 
like the best opportunity for us to do any testing is mm. live on the spot, change the words that you use yep. with your consumer and see what they do. Mm. Um, and it is, has been integral to the brand updates that we're getting ready to release um, in Q4 because it informed all of the language and the concepts that we were trying to pin down. Mm. You know, how do you take an emergent concept um, in a category that has lots of opinions about it? Consumers have tons of opinions about yeah. kombucha and, yep. and whether it's good or bad or whatever. Um, and, uh, and and how do you how do you parse out what they really care about? Mm. And give them the information that they need and want, but not confuse them or overwhelm them. Yeah. And and product demoing is the is just amazing. You know, it's a live theater stage yep. where you're able to to just see what happens at every change. I, I love it. That's cool. So you're actually out there doing it yourself? Uh, I was doing all of the demos myself until June of this year, and then. Yeah. We were able to do some hiring and bring some demo assistance in, but the, you know, I firmly believe from the entrepreneurial perspective that it's my job to do everyone else's job first. Yeah. Um, because how can I help them grow? How can I measure their growth? How can I measure, you know, their capacity? And, and if I don't know how to do it myself. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. How many employees do you have on the team at the moment? Right now, we are a team of four full-time and one part-time person. Yeah, uh, great. Um, I can imagine you'd have so much pleasure in building that team, you know, and especially imparting all of the culture that, you know, you're, you know, put into the product and the brand and, you know, you're starting to build it out and that would, you know, that in itself would be a fun part of the role that you've got at the moment. Um, what do you see for the future? Like, what's the next 12 months bring for you? Oh, boy. Uh, I hope... Uh, Canada national expansion. That's what we're working hard on. Okay. So from coast to coast. Yeah. We're Quebec will take us a little bit of extra time because of the regulatory compliance stuff for packaging. Right. You know, you just need space and you need to have it just right. And um, so we're ready to go as far East as we can with our standard multilingual or bilingual compliant packaging. Um, and then take a run at the U.S. when we see that the marketing sticks. Yeah, got yeah. And so are you going to have to grow into a new space? Yeah, you know, Jackie and I just moved in um, as co-producers in June. And it's amazing to go from a commissary space to like your own Dedicated. facility where yeah. you truly can control all the things that are happening. Yeah. It's that we keep saying, you know, we finally feel like real manufacturers now um, because we can make every single one of those decisions yeah. for ourselves at the best of our business. That's great. Um, and what we kind of see is that, you know, we have an incredible opportunity to increase capacity where we will run into difficulties is growing storage and inventory holding, mm-hmm. um, both dry and cold there's just, there becomes just so much and you simply can't get your distributors in and out fast enough to move all of that product. Um, So, you know, eventually probably in the next 18 months, we'll probably outgrow this beautiful space that we absolutely love and we'll have to go find something else. But 
Um, at least now we have a much better idea of what we will need and what we'll be able to take on and what the requirements for that space would be. Yeah. Um, scary though it is to invest in your own manufacturing, you know, most food is traditionally co-packed and that's yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, totally right. And that was a common thread throughout this podcast as well. Um, I've got one question that I've started asking at the end of all of my shows, and uh, it seems to tease out quite a bit of information. And we sort of just touched on it now because you did mention that you'd like to go national over the next 12 months. But if we do fast forward a year from now, and you could say to me that you'd had your best year ever, what would it be specifically that you would have accomplished? Oh, so you've gone national, in, in, but in, tw- is there in 12 a, months. Yeah. Is there a big goal? Is do you have something at the end of the line in a 12 month period that you're going to go, if I accomplish that, I'll have just absolutely blown away all expectations that I had. You know, um, our our big hairy audacious goal, our BHAG, uh, yep. <laughs> is isn't always uh, I love I love that one. It's yeah, it's a good really one. Yeah. Um but our BHAG is to move a million units okay. um, in, in a year. Um, you know, so that's, that's annual trailing revenue of a, a few million dollars. Yeah. Uh, that seems impractical in 12 months, but not if serendipity is on our side and, and you know, we really strategically nail our asks as we grow. And that's very much uh, what we intend to do. So that would, that would be really, I would love to see, I will look forward to seeing when that happens. If I can do it in 12 months, I'd be stoked. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've got it all down on paper and you're going to be extremely calculated and, um, you know, very firm on what it's going to take to get there. So good luck with it all. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. That was a great story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was amazing to be here. I really appreciate the, not only the opportunity to share our stories, but it's so amazing to listen to the stories of all of these amazing entrepreneurs, you know, that are here locally around us building these incredible businesses. Yeah. It's tremendously inspiring to see us all struggling through the same muck, uh, but coming out with these incredible beautiful concepts that uh, the people are executing. So thank you for highlighting those. Yeah, no worries. You said it very well, because that's how I feel too. Um, Lindsay, what's the best way for everybody to get in touch? Absolutely. You can always find us on our website at kindredcultures.ca. Find us on local retail shelves at Whole Foods, Choices, Nature's Fair, spud.ca, legendshall.com. Newly launched with Vigana, we actually just found our 100th store today uh, out at Naked Naturals in Qualicum Beach. These little independents are absolutely the most amazing for our businesses. So go out and support them too. That's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what I can do to help you achieve your packaging vision, you can reach me directly at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You could DM me on Instagram at thepackheavypodcast or we could also connect on LinkedIn and start a conversation there. I'll see you next week.